Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Rodney Smith bringing you another edition of Our Own Voices Live. This is our special Memorial Day show, and today's show is going to be about an individual who survived a mortar attack. And now to honor America, especially the brave men and women serving our nation in the Persian Gulf and throughout the world, please join in the singing of our national anthem. The anthem will be followed by a flyover of F-16 jets from the 56th Tactical Training Wing at MacDill Air Force Base and will be performed by the Florida Orchestra under the direction of Maestro Yaha Ling and sung by Grammy Award winner Whitney Houston. Associated with barbecues 
the beginning of summer, it is a time of reflection and remembrance. And a part of that reflection and remembrance is on our fallen and on the the war's past. But all too often, those who participate in those wars either don't tell their story because they don't want to or because they're not afforded an opportunity to do so. So today, I wanted to afford an opportunity to a service member who participated in protecting our country during a time of war in Vietnam. And the, one of the reasons why I want to tell his story, because his story is like so many other stories, but also because Vietnam for so many seems like so long ago. It is a war that transformed the world. It is a war that transformed America. It's a war that transformed our military. It's a war that activated many civilians to be involved in the affairs of our country associated with war, when we should go, why we should go, when we shouldn't go, and when we should bring our folks home. As a matter of fact, the Vietnam War and those who fought it had a lot to do with how we fought the first Gulf War. There were a lot of lessons that had been learned during Vietnam that we used to guide us in that first war. Even lessons that we had hoped our politicians would have before they would make a decision to ever send us to a war again. Now, we haven't always been successful in getting our politicians to understand awesome, in some cases, awful price that those young men and women will have to pay who go to fight our country's wars. I wanted to give you a few stats about our military. And as awesome as our military may be, our military is not the end all It is not to solve all of our nation's problems. Sure, our military probably can go and defeat any other nation's military to date. But some problems are beyond force. I'm talking about the ideology that a bomb doesn't necessarily destroy And this is an opportunity to encourage our politicians to remember that. It's also a time, Memorial Day, to reflect. And I wanted you all to know that even though we often talk about our military, that only 1% of Americans have ever served in our military. That's right, just 1%. We talked about this on our Saturday show. But I wanted to reiterate that. It's 1%. And the immediate families of that 1% represent another 3%. So if you look at the number of people percentage-wise who are 
directly impacted by America going to war, it's about 4% of America that's directly impacted. Now, there's some good and bad associated with that. The good being that most Americans don't have to suffer the horrors of war. The bad is that most Americans are so far removed from war that if it wasn't for the occasional news reports, would not even know when we're at war. And that can be a problem because of the needs of the war fighters, but also the needs of them once they come home. I posted a meme of how it can appear to that warfighter when they come home. In other words, we have a lot of talk about Memorial Day. Maybe we'll have some parade. We'll have some free meals, maybe some free rooms, hopefully some free slurpees because those are my favorite. But then there's another group of Americans, those warfighters, who are now home, who are no longer the way that they were when they left. And oftentimes you see them as you walk by them or drive by them, as they're oftentimes under bridges, overpasses, sometimes hand-handling for money, sometimes just sitting and laying on the street corners, hanging out at parks or in line at a shelter or rescue mission. These were those heroes that we speak so much about on Veterans Day and Memorial Day. But yet, there they sit, there they lay oftentimes ridiculed and seldom helped. They are fellow Americans. And there was a time when the majority of those people, as it still is, but that majority, the demographics are shifting. Because now as society has changed and the nature of war has changed, not only do we see those once tall, strong men, leaders of other men in battle, uniforms sharp, boots shine, metals gleaming. We see them in a state of disarray, bearded faces, hair beshuffled, clothes tattered, and oftentimes bent or slumped over. Where is their parade, and what will we do for them? It is not for us to have pity on them, but it is for us to hold up our responsibility for them not at their home as much as we expected them to hold their, their responsibility when the commander-in-chief ordered them at war and Congress approved it. And remember, war by America 
is not done by one political party. War by America is done by the American political system and ultimately by the American people who elected the president and Congress. How do we take care of our men and women once they return home? How will we take care of them now that they are home? And as our wars hopefully continue to wind down, there will be even more to take care of. Is America ready? Are you ready? And it's not just a war fighter that needs help. All too often, it is the immediate family member who becomes the caregiver of those veterans once they return home. Who takes care of the caregiver? One of the great things about technology, and especially medical technology, is that we're able to save people today that years past we weren't able to save. Now, that's a good piece. The flip side of that is that they're coming back with such injuries that they're so much different from the injuries of years past. And they are so difficult and labor-intensive to treat. Whether it's PTSD, which has been something that's been around and known about for decades, but still barely treated, or whether it's TBI, traumatic brain injury, that's probably been around just as long, but recently received its name. How does that impact the veteran when they return home? Well, what we're hoping to do today is tell you the story of how these things, and that was the story by Master Sergeant Maynard Mills, who spent 23 years, 5 months, and 17 days in the United States military through the Air Force. Came in in 1957 and served through 1981. He was originally from Ocala, Florida. He was stationed in Vietnam at Tansanut Air Force or Air Base. It was actually the airport in Saigon, Vietnam. And his story is the story of a mortar attack. And that mortar attack happened December 4th, 1 a.m. It was a Sunday morning, and I want to bring him in to share his story with you. Good afternoon, Sergeant Maynard. Welcome to Our Own Voices Live. Yeah, how you guys doing? Doing great, sir. I know that uh, I don't want to take up too much time because I want to get right to your story. As it is Memorial Day, and I wanted folks to get a sense of what it's like for those veterans that we celebrate once they come home, but to get a feel for what it was like when they were in conflict in the hot LZ, the war zone. And after speaking with you yesterday, I thought your story was an awesome one, 
to introduce, to give the folks an idea of what it's like. So if you could take a moment to tell us who you are, where you're from, and what led you to the service, that will help get us started. Well, I'm originally from uh, Ocala, Florida. Uh, that's a town in central Florida, as well as born and raised. And uh, I entered the service at age 17. My mother signed for me after graduating from high school and uh, went into the Air Force because it was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to uh, fly airplanes. However, uh, once I got in, I found out that uh, your visual acuity had to be 2020, and my vision was not 2020. So there went my hopes of uh, becoming a pilot. So I uh, just uh, went the uh, route of uh, enlisting since I couldn't get into what they call aviation cadets back then. You go into uh, pilot training and not have uh, a college degree back during the time. And uh, aviation cadets was sort of like West Point, but you were learning how to fly. And some of these guys were officers coming out of ROTC college or the academies. And some, of course, were coming uh, from high school. I think at the time, though, you had to be uh, 19 years old. But uh, anyway, since I couldn't uh, fly airplanes, uh, I uh, went the enlisted route and uh, spent many years in uh, four different career fields. And uh, that's about to justify career. I did what I wanted to do, did a lot of traveling. I've been on uh, every continent except Africa. But uh, in any event, uh, one assignment was no different than the other because it was just, for me, the whole thing was an experience of what I wanted to do. I had what some people would call a good assignment. I called it just another experience. So anyway, 1966, the morning of uh, December 4th, 1966, I was in uh, bed slept in bunk beds. I slept on the top bunk. My bunk mate was named Penrose. So I was asleep, and uh, all of a sudden I was awakened by a thump, and then some other thumps, and then you could hear the beds rustling uh, in the in your hooch and the other hooches around you, or oh, hooches was what we called the old building that we slept in. You could hear the beds rustling, and you could hear guys start yelling, get out, get out, get out, which meant to get out and go into the sandbag bunker, which was sandwiched between the hooches. Each hooch had their own sandbag bunker, and that's where you went. And uh, we had a lot of, uh, began to hear some small arms fire. More mortars were falling and we were uh, all huddled in the uh, sandbag bunker. We don't know what's going on. Uh, I know what was going on with me. I was praying. But uh, throughout the night, the mortars continued to fall, and you could hear small arms fire. And uh, I was glad to see daylight. I did feel a little relief. 
the small arms fire was less. Uh, no more mortars were falling, but you can see better what's going on in the daytime than you can at the in night. So anyway, uh, we we were able to come out of the bunkers uh, probably about eight nine o'clock the next morning. But we had to stay within our containment areas. Couldn't get anything to eat right away. But later on, they released us and we could get something to eat. And uh, during the events that occurred, uh, we lost a total of three security policemen. Uh, they were killed by the uh, Viet Cong that penetrated the base, a, a suicide squad of about 30 penetrated the perimeter of the base, and they were going up and down the flight line throwing satchel charges at the airplanes trying to blow them up. So, as I said, we lost three air policemen that that were killed, and several of the others uh, had got wounded. We did have one air policeman that stood out. I can't uh, remember the guy's name, but he was an airman basic. In other words, he had no strike. He had been busted for sleeping on duty. So, BC had penetrated the base, and that particular night he was alert because I heard that he killed 13. I later found out that it was nine. He personally killed nine BC. And he was recognized by General Momar, who was the 7th Air Force. Uh, commander, General Momar, promoted him, gave him two stripes on the spot plus the Silver Star. And wow. Now, before we, go on, before we go on any further, I just want you to repeat who he was and what he did. Share that with the audience again. I, I want to make sure they get it. Yeah. He, he was a security policeman. We call him air police back then. And they had the responsibility of guarding the base. So VC uh, had uh, the suicide squad had penetrated the perimeter of the base. They were running up and down the flight line throwing satchel charges. But during the uh, immediate penetration, there was one security policeman who was on his post, manning his machine gun. He had no stripes. He was Aaron Basic. He had been busted for sleeping on post. Once they penetrated and came into his area, he killed a total of nine VC. I had heard that it was 13, but I was later uh, told that it was nine that he killed. But in any event, General Momar, four-star general, who's the 7th Air Force commander, promoted this man from an airman basic to an airman second class, gave him two stripes, on the spot, and the Silver Star. Wow. And the moral to this story is, despite his heroics, before I left Vietnam, coming back to the States, he had been busted again for sleeping on post, so he back to no stripes. Mm. But... Uh, I understand what you're saying about the the things that happen with veterans, you know, when they come back. Fortunately uh, for myself, uh, when I first came back from Vietnam, it didn't really affect me mentally, but 
psychologically it did because uh, I would react when I would hear a car backfire. I would immediately yeah. drop to the floor thinking that it might be gunshots. And that went on for about a year or so. You know, b- before we spend too the time on that, I, what, see, we, we do talk about what occasionally we talk about what happens to people when they return home. But you were under attack, and I do want you to get a little more detailed than what, what else was going through your mind, if anything. What was it like to be under constant bombardment, not knowing really what's going on or ultimately what's going to happen to you? So I want you to, uh, if you can share that with us, and then I want you to share what it's like in the days and weeks immediately following an attack. What's going, what's happening to you? So if you could share both of those, I'd really appreciate it. Well, the only thing I can tell you is this, prayer. That's it. I wasn't thinking about anything else other than prayer, and that's that was how I was spending my time huddled in that uh in that bunker. That's it. Prayer. And uh I prayed the whole time because I didn't know what was going on outside that bunker. And uh as far as the uh the days immediately after that, it wasn't over because as I said that happened on Sunday morning. Well they finally caught the last VC and killed him about, I guess, about 10, 30, 11 o'clock thereabouts that Monday. So they were still on the base. It's just that they hadn't caught them all. But they did find them, and they killed they killed all of them. All of them were killed by our security police. And uh, there was one airman I know killed three of them, other than the other uh, airman I told you about that killed nine. And that was also wow. some of the some of the veterans that are out there uh, have been have been around as long as I have might remember that that was also the attack when the K9 dog Nemo was uh, was uh, uh, alerted his handlers of an attack and he became a hero attacking attacking the uh, the VC. Now, did, were you all aware? Was there any warnings that there was going to be an attack, or did this what what happened leading up to that attack? No, there was no warning. That there's that there's never a warning because, uh, for one thing, give you a good example. When I was at Thompson News, there was a lot of construction going on. They were preparing for other troops to come in other missions. So there was a lot of construction going on. And during the morning, when the laborers are coming to work, you know that there's VC among them. But you have a security policeman and you have the Vietnamese policeman at the gate. And those trucks that were loaded with the uh, laborers, they just laid them right on through the gate and onto the base. So we knew 
that there was VC among them because you couldn't tell your enemy because they all look the same. Because you see, the, the, you had the North Vietnamese communists, and then you had the Viet Cong, who were the South Vietnamese communists uh, or sympathizers. Thank you for sharing that and, and giving the, the folks an idea of just what you mean when you say VC and what the difference is. So once the attack was over and they they found them, was it pretty much business as usual? Did you all get any type of uh uh, psychological counseling. What happened to you after that? Nothing. You just went back to work. That's it. There was no psychological counseling. There was nothing offered. You know, things always change over time. I remember the time when alcoholics were 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 discharged from the uh, military. Now they later developed the social access programs and these guys can go to uh, alcohol abuse counseling. Their career is saved. I'm just giving that as an example of how things change over time within the military. So how, so how did you all cope with that experience? Because, I, you know, you there's someone that maybe you when you get in your bunk, you don't really think much about it, but they're alive. And then after you have this experience, that person may no longer be with you. Uh, how, how do you all, do you do you talk about it as a group, deal with it individually? And if you deal with it individually, how do you go about that? How did you, how did you go about it? Well, there, there were no, uh, like I said, things, things evolve, change and evolve over time. Uh, during the time that I was over there, uh, we never talked about things like that. We never did. There was never any conversation. We just talked about general things, what's going on at the job and, you know, stuff like this. There was never, never any discussion about uh, the attacks or and, – and sometimes we would have saboteurs also do little – uh, things on the base itself, minor things, you know, nobody got killed, but, you know, the possibility existed of people getting seriously injured. So, you know, you just went about things in a normal way. That That's it. Like I said, we never talked about those things. And as I said earlier, you know, talk to who? They didn't have the counselors back then. Wow. Well, I know that uh, you said you would give me 30 minutes, and you've given me 30 minutes. Your story is fascinating. I, I hope that the folks who are listening to it and who listen to it in the future are able to get the feeling and the sensation of what it was like during your time there, but also compare and contrast it to today. Uh, you mentioned some things that, we still hear about today from our soldiers, our military members who are overseas in the Middle East who are fighting an enemy that has sympathizers that come in within the compound and you know that they're there, you don't know who that they are until they open fire and kill fellow Americans. 
uh, the attacks are not always known, as in most wars, we don't always know when the enemy is going to attack. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to say something, uh, a little something I just want to get off my chest. Uh, yes, sir. It is not, it's not fair what our leaders in the military and the Defense Department are doing to these people today, sending them on these deployments six months at a time. You come back to the States for maybe three or four months, and you're gone again, you know, you're getting uh, soldiers that are getting killed on their third, fourth, or fifth deployments over to uh, the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and it's not fair. During the time when I was in, during the Vietnam War, uh, you might go a TDY. You might. But normally, you got a one-year tour in Southeast Asia, be it Thailand or Vietnam, you got one year, and you didn't have to worry about going back, not unless you were in one of the critical career fields and your AFSC was needed, and they had what they called the involuntary second C tour where you might be selected to go back to uh, Southeast Asia again. And that happened to me uh also, because uh, although I had been in Vietnam, uh, it wasn't uh, a few years later, uh, while the war was still going on, uh, I was picked to go back to uh, Southeast Asia on a second sea tour. But I managed to get it switch from going back to Vietnam. I managed to uh, get it switched to Korea. So I wound up going to Korea, whereas I could have been on an involuntary second sea tour, but that would have made a total of two years. But like I said, only those critical fields, and the majority of the people did not go back to Southeast Asia on a second sea tour, not unless they wanted to go back, and a lot of them did volunteer to go back. But for what they are doing to these people today, sending them back on six, seven, eight deployments. That's not fair. And consequently, there has been a very high rate of suicide among soldiers. There's also been a very high divorce rate in soldiers. And I can only attribute it to one thing from what I've read, and it is those deployments. When you, when you deploy, I'm sorry, continue. No, I was just going to say, you know, enough's enough. PTSD, we, during the Vietnam War, we lost, I don't know how many times as many people during the Vietnam War than what they did during the Gulf Wars. But after the Vietnam War, we never had as many PTSDs as we have now. I, I'm really glad that you brought that up because as as you are saying that and as we are sending more folks as advisors and trainers to the Middle East as we speak, 
we're also undergoing a major drawdown in United States military forces where people, some are actually being, if they're fortunate enough, are being paid to get out. And our force structure has been shrinking now for years, even though our war footing continues to increase. Why do you think that is? And I know that you may not be in a position, but just from as as a former military serviceman and also as a member of general society, why do you think that we're cutting, drawing down our forces in a time of continual war activities in the world and when the, knowing that our military service members are deploying, as you mentioned, I know some that have deployed ten times. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you know, unfortunately, it's all politics. It's all politics. You see, Congress controls everything, and congressmen are going to look out for their district and those uh, people who are his constituents in that district. Because you see, I'll give you a good example. About three years ago, Air Force wanted to move a squadron of, I believe it was F-16s. They wanted to move them from Isleson Air Force Base. And the congressman for that district stopped the Air Force from doing it dead in its tracks. He wanted to have an explanation from the Air Force as to why. And there's only one man. One man. He wanted the Air Force to tell him why they wanted to move this squadron from Isles and Air Force Base. Well, uh, they didn't move. That's all I'm going to say. They didn't move. That's one man had the power to do that. And like I said, it's all politics. Uh, the Air Force wants to close up a base to help save money because they're always saving money. So what they did was uh, they put out the list of bases they're going to close, and as soon as they put that list out, congressmen or senators from those districts, they start growing again. No, you can't take that away. They always talk about the impact it would have on the economy. Those people that would lose jobs, that's all they talk about. And some of the bases do get shut down. And that's and I'm talking about all of the services are involved with that, Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. But some of them don't get shut down. Like I said, it's all a political game. You scratch my back, experience. I'll back. In your experience, in your experience, do you believe that the American citizenry are really informed as to what's going on with their military and military personnel? Oh no, 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 no. The general population does not know. Hmm. Well, it's it's unfortunate. Because those, even though the commander in chief is the one who gives the order for us for the military to go into combat, ultimately it's Congress who approves war, as stated in our Constitution. And each congressman 
has a district that he represents, and there are members from his or her district that are going to fight those wars that they send us to. I also found it interesting that the majority of our political representatives, our congressmen and our Congress and our senators have not served in any capacity, and the vast majority of their children have not served. I've often wondered, would we view war and sending our young men and women to war the same if those who were making the decision had that experience under their belt? Well, you got to remember one thing. You're talking about those that have not served in the Congress or Senate or whatever. The thing is, these people have that elite status. And having that elite status, they can get things done that you and I can't get done. And we can't get into that club either. So what I'm saying is those people back during the time when they had the draft, those people were able to avoid the draft because of the fact that they knew somebody, they could get exempt status, they could go to a doctor and pay off a doctor and get classified, I believe it's 4F. So those people never served because, you see, they were able to take advantage legally and illegally of those opportunities that were there. Mm. Well... Again, I wanted to thank you for sharing your story, sharing your observation. We do have a large number of, due to the drawdown, we have a large number of our active duty who are coming home and who are being released. And though this is Memorial Day and it is a time of reflection on our fallen, I hope that we'll also reflect on those who have honorably served and who are coming home some because their enlistment is up and they chose not to re-enlist, but many others because we're actually undergoing a drawdown. And we're undergoing a drawdown when our forces are already some of the smallest that we've had in decades at a time when the demand on those forces is at an ops tempo that's even greater than during Vietnam. When during Vietnam you typically had, as you stated, one or two tours Whereas today, some members are having up to 10 tours of duty in the theater. That is quite the contrast. And if we were to take and look at the experience of those wounded warriors and others who returned home from Vietnam and some of the things that they've had to deal with up until now and will continue to deal with until they leave this earthly plane, if we can somehow transpose that on the experiences and the lives of those who are returning home from our wars in the Middle East, we actually can predict some of these outcomes. And just as you mentioned, these multiple tours of duty in the combat zone, it's unprecedented, 
And is it really the best that our country can do with less than 1% serving and that number shrinking due to the drawdown of our forces? It is something to think about. There's no better day to think about it than Memorial Day as we think about our fallen. Did you have any other closing remarks that you would like to leave our audience with? No, I would just, uh, as a veteran and as one who has had friends, close friends to die in war, I would just like to say uh, that uh, we're all blessed to have observed another Memorial Day in honor of those who lost their lives. Well, thank you for your service. I came into service uh, six years after the official end of Vietnam. Many of my trainers at the time were folks who had served in Vietnam. And even though I came in a uh, non-segregated military, there was still quite the separation between the forces in reality. But I do remember those black sergeants at the time taking me aside and telling me that we had to be the best and that we had to represent in a manner that would always show positively on our people. And I remember them telling me to learn everything that I can do and learn everything that I can to be better as a mechanic because I came in service as an aircraft mechanic. I worked on the flight line. And they told me that those pilots who, for the Air Force, usually fight our wars, which that is also changing. But they said those pilots are depending on us, the crew chief, to come back home safely. And as a crew chief, I needed to make sure that I was the best at my job so that he could be the best at his job without worrying about whether his aircraft could take him and bring him. To this day, I give thanks to those sergeants who had fought in a war whose shoulders as a military man that I stood on, those who set an example of courage and excellence that I hope I adopted and was a good representative of the training and the good words that they passed on to me, that I hope I was able to pass on through my actions as well as my words to those who I later trained and supervised. And really, I'm talking about folks just like you, sir. I do appreciate your service, and I appreciate your willingness to share your story and your perspectives to myself as well as to the listening audience of Our Own Voices Live. And as we end our show, because it is Memorial Day, as we started our show with the national anthem that's sung by Whitney Houston, We're going to end our show, as many military men are familiar with, ending their day. And also it's a sound very familiar on Memorial Day as we have various observances, whether at Arlington, our national military cemetery, or local cemeteries around the country, just as we have here in Las Vegas. And that is the playing of Pat. So thank you again, sir, for being on the show. And here is the playing of Pat as we end our show.